It's 12 noon, time for the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. The following conversation was recorded uh, just a couple days ago on Christmas morning. Not a time normally when it is easy to track down radio interviewees, but it helps when the guy you want to talk to is spending his holidays under medical quarantine. Davis, have you taken your temperature this morning? Uh, Actually, you know what? Damn, Robert, thanks for reminding me. I have not. Let me run down and grab that. Thanks for reminding me. Okay, you you go do that and report back to us in a moment. Okay, got it. And uh, while he rustles up his thermometer, let me make the introductions. He is Davis Perkins of San Rafael, California, recently returned from Liberia, where he was dispensing emergency medical aid to Ebola patients. Davis was there for about six weeks, part of a team organized by the relief agency Heart to Heart International. He and his colleagues uh, were stationed at an Ebola treatment unit, an ETU, kind of a field hospital, in a rural area just a couple hours from the capital of Monrovia. And uh, now that he is back, it is time for the mandatory 21-day quarantine, which uh, is not actually as severe as it might sound. He is not in a sealed tent, nor in a special hospital isolation unit. He is at his San Francisco Bay Area home with his wife, Crystal, and even able to go out and about from time to time with a few restrictions. No crowds. I can't go to parties. I can't go to movies. No shaking of hands. No intimacy, of course. You can't play Santa Claus this year and have kids on your Can't play Santa Claus. Nope. Uh, I'm really missing movies, but I can wait for a couple more weeks for sure. The other thing that Davis has to do during this quarantine period is to take his temperature twice a day. Yes, I just took it, and I'm well within the guidelines. Roughly 98.6? Actually, it's a little lower, uh, (laughs) 97.9. So definitely no fever, which is good, because if Davis's temperature were to spike, things could get more complicated. He'd have to contact county health officials, who'd then have to put him under observation and try to determine if uh, the fever was caused by Ebola or uh, maybe something less dire. In fact, uh, that is one of the reasons why Davis is supposed to stay away from crowds during the quarantine. They don't want him to catch a flu or a cold or anything else that could give him a fever and trigger a false alarm. But uh, as I said, Davis checked out just fine on this day, which meant that we could proceed with the interview. He and I had been uh, in sporadic email contact while he was in Liberia, but this was our first chance to actually talk by phone, and uh, I was eager to learn about his experiences with the Ebola outbreak and uh, also this waiting period that he's in now. Davis, are you worried at all, or is this um, just feel like, oh, you know, a precautionary measure? I'm actually not, Robert. I, I think back on my exposure to patients in Liberia, and I can tell you later about um, the elaborate training that you go through as far as your personal protective equipment. You are certainly exposed, but you're also very well protected. So I feel pretty comfortable that that I'm safe, that I didn't get exposed to it. I want to get to your experience in Liberia, but first of all, you are a landscape painter. Uh, That's one of your passions. How did you end up in uh, Liberia in the first place treating Ebola patients? Well, it's kind of a long story, but uh, I've always been an artist as far as I can remember, but um, I went into the Army. I became a paratrooper and then went into Special Forces. And when I got out of the Army, I needed a summer's job. And so I was hired as a smoke jumper, um, and that's where you parachute into forest fires, and that was for the Forest Service. And so during the summer, I would jump fires and make my living, and then during the winter, 
I started to study painting at the University of Oregon. And so it became um, too, um, how can I say, kind of my life was... A double life? Pretty much, yeah, exactly. Uh, I would work the fire season and then paint during the winter. And I had really a lucky break as a young painter. One of my professors at the University of Oregon was a, a former Air Force colonel. He was a, a pilot during World War II and um, just an amazing guy. His name was Alan Hamer. But he told me, Davis, you're parachuting into forest fires in the middle of, of nowhere. I want you to paint it. And I want this to be your graduating thesis. So my last two years at the university, I documented what I did uh, in a series of paintings. And um, I was lucky enough, after graduation, the Smithsonian uh, gave me a one-man show of my, uh, of my paintings. And it wasn't that I was a great painter by any means. It was just kind of the novelty of, of being a smoke jumper and then also being an artist. In fact, right now I'm working on a painting uh, commemorating the 75th anniversary of smoke jumping. That's in my studio right now. So we've got the first part of the story, a paratrooper turned smoke jumper and painter, but there's also the medical side. Right, yeah. And when I uh, was smoke jumping, Robert, I was always interested in emergency medicine. And I ended up being in charge of our what they call rescue section in our smoke jumper uh, organization in Alaska. So we would parachute into air crashes or go into remote villages, and we also provided emergency medical care to uh, firefighters on the ground. And then when I decided to get out of smoke jumping, I was hired as a firefighter down here in Belmont, San Carlos, uh, there in the peninsula. And they, uh, my fire department eventually sent me to paramedic school, and I became a firefighter slash paramedic in my department. And, and I just retired, uh, oh, it's been about three years ago, from the fire department. But I um, still maintain my paramedic license. Aha. Uh-huh. And so now this latest chapter, though, emergency medical relief overseas, mm-hmm. you know, leading you to Liberia just the past few months. How did you get involved with that? Since I retired from the fire department, I've been going overseas with various medical teams. I've been to Haiti now four times, um, and I've been to uh, Ethiopia with a medical team, and uh, also Cambodia. So I had uh, some international medical experience in pretty austere, pretty primitive locales, and that is the reason I was selected to go to uh, Liberia with Heart to Heart International. Heart to Heart International is uh, is a medical relief group. Is that what? Yeah, are? it's a nonprofit, uh, what they call an NGO, a non governmental organization. They were the ones that offered me a position. <laughs> it was pretty funny. They, I had two days to get ready to go. Uh, it was total spur of the moment, out the door and you know to the airport. So you have done some dangerous things in your life. I mean, uh, smoke jumping is not exactly a safe profession. Firefighting and uh, some of the other um, emergency medical stuff you've done. But Ebola is really something else again. It is. Uh, yeah, it, and uh, nothing to compare it with. As a firefighter paramedic, I've certainly dealt with HIV-positive patients and hepatitis patients, and you're very cognizant of your, of your treatment protocols and your safety with your you know, IV needles and uh, disposal and bodily fluids and everything. But yeah, this was 
as I say, just totally unprecedented. And yeah, and among the hardest hit groups have been uh, healthcare workers, doctors, nurses, that's and others. Right. Yeah, that's correct. And my understanding is it was because no one knew, and especially in Liberia, no one knew what they were dealing with. And so you had these healthcare providers that were treating patients, and no one had an idea what the danger was. And it just completely devastated the infrastructure of the uh, country. Did you hesitate knowing that the risks are pretty high compared to other communicable diseases for those treating and handling patients? Did you talk to your wife? What what went on in your mind uh, when you had only a couple days to decide here? Yeah, well, I discussed it with her um, when I initiated the application process, of course. And my, my wife is also a paramedic. Uh, she works for the Office of Emergency Medical Service in, in San Francisco. She's also a member of our disaster medical assistance team, DMAT, the federal disaster team. So she's in the same field, and she's, she has her master's in public health. So we certainly discussed it, and um, she was apprehensive at first, certainly. But wh- one thing I should mention, too, Robert, when I was in the fire department, I was also a member of the hazardous materials response team. So I'm, uh, I was trained, and, and certainly not in a medical aspect, but more of a chemical fire-type situation. But I, I do have experience in, you know, the protective equipment um, used in, in hazardous materials exposures. And so, you know, I kind of had to wake up, and I, I think possibly that was another reason I was selected. Do you like danger, Davis? You know... People ask me that a lot, and adrenaline junkie comes up a lot. And um, I'm God, I'm 64 years old now, and uh, I mean, I like being um, good at something, and I like uh, feeling that I'm prepared and somewhat confident in what I'm about to do. Um, you know, as a smoke jumper, I didn't see it as is that there was certainly danger to it, but you're very well trained, and you're working with the highest caliber of people, and the same with my firefighting colleagues. Um, you know, I'm not a fast driver. I'm not a, a daredevil by any means. So, Well, tell us what someone does then uh, when they have a couple days to get prepared for a trip to Liberia to work at an Ebola treatment unit. Boy, it was a fast, crazy time uh, just to getting everything ready. Uh, I had to apply for visas and having just returned as I say earlier from Ethiopia, I was pretty well, I had all the equipment pretty well on, on hand. And I actually had uh, my friends and uh, family, my ex-wife and her husband and my daughter and Crystal, um, all took me out to dinner the night before I actually left. And My uh, ex-wife, I might mention, was very upset with me. She thought I was being irresponsible for going. That was her words. <laughs> wow. Yeah, so uh, but it was just out of concern. Um, we're very, we're very close still, and um, huh. my daughter was pretty upset and apprehensive. But throughout this whole thing, my wife, just being also in the field, was um, just incredibly supportive and nurturing to all my friends and family. So, so you got to um, Monrovia, the capital. Mm-hmm. After this sort of whirlwind preparation, right, uh, right. you know, on short notice, to get trained 
as an mm-hmm. Ebola treatment specialist, a technician. Um, yeah. Tell me about the training and tell me um, what you learned. Well, the, there's, uh, there's eight of us, I should mention, there's eight of us on our team, um, like three doctors, great, just terrific people. Uh, we had nurses and LPN. I, I think I was the only paramedic. So we all flew to uh, Senegal to Dakar, and then uh, from there we took a UN flight, a small, um, small flight into uh, Monrovia. And so the next, uh, I think on Monday, we all started what they call cold training. And this is all put on by the U.S. military, which I was really surprised to see. But um, the, the military was involved with not only the training of uh, healthcare providers, but also uh, building, the physical building of the ETUs throughout the country. So um, to be honest, I was incredibly impressed with our U.S. military. They were just, um, just hands-down professionals, and the training was pretty strenuous. It was just hours and hours of practicing putting on these uh, protective suits, these PPEs. And then the final couple of days were, um, were actual full-blown scenarios where you would be uh, separated into a team and um, you would have a simulated patient and you would have to uh, go through the treatment protocols and uh, voice your decisions, what you were going to do. And um, these were like uh, two-hour scenarios, and you'd go from patient to patient, from combative to uh, a recent death of, um, of Ebola. And um, so very, very oh, wow. realistic uh, wow. scenarios. So, yeah, so you mean people are acting, mm-hmm. pretending to be patients, uh, mm-hmm. You are donning the full protective suit, right. and you're going through various procedures, and people are watching you, and mm-hmm. they're saying, good job, or nope. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, Robert. Yeah, like, for example, one of the greatest uh, fears we have, as you can imagine, you're in these full protective suits, which includes masks and goggles and a hood. And um, occasionally, if a... Uh, and, and fortunately, I didn't have this in reality, but in these scenarios, uh, you'd have a, a combative patient um, oh, who would boy. be, you know, physically, um, uh, you'd have to restrain them. And here you're in full protective equipment. If you can imagine thrashing and trying to restrain somebody and then having them rip, reach up and rip your <sighs> goggles off. So you'd have to have either Haldol or, or Valium close by so you could... You know, give them a shot of um, a Valium just to calm them down. And as I say, fortunately, we didn't have that scenario in real life. I mean, I'm sure it's happened uh, in other ETUs, but it didn't happen to me, fortunately. But I can remember that was one of the more dramatic scenarios that they put they put me into. So Wow. You know, I'm thinking most of us rarely have a situation in our lives where one tiny slip-up could cost us our lives. You know, Robert, that's really a good point because it was just almost overwhelming when you would be with an Ebola-positive patient and you'd go, well, I have to start an IV on this, on this person. And um, one thing I should mention, you always did things uh, in pairs. You always had a buddy uh, with you. So you're doing this all together. But, um, but yeah, you know, you would uh, get your IV set up and you'd talk to your patient and you'd determine 
whether or not this person is going to start thrashing with their arms. And you have three pairs of rubber gloves on, so your dexterity is diminished somewhat. And you just try to make uh, eye-to-eye contact with that patient to determine if they're going to jump, you know, from you uh, sticking a needle in their arm. I mean, you're holding this needle and you're going, if I make a mistake here, it's a potential uh, death sentence. And so that was the most extreme. Um, You would just have to take a really deep breath, Robert, and just um, get your head around the whole sequence and just take things very, very slowly. The same held true with if a person was going to vomit on you, which happens a lot with Ebola, that and diarrhea, as you know. So you've got a lot of body fluids everywhere. Yeah, it, re- it requires a vigilance. <laughs> it must be exhausting to have to be that aware every second for hours on end, day after day. Well, I don't mean to give you that impression. It would just be for like a procedure that you're using. Um, I see, I see. So once you kind of withdraw from the patient, make sure everything's okay, and you you're talking to your partner. Of course, you're still obviously dressed and you're sweating like a stuck pig in these things. And it's, and it's very hot and very uncomfortable. And your, the scent of chlorine is just permeating everything because everything, of course, is sprayed with chlorine. There would be several Liberians that were trained as what they're called sprayers. And you've probably seen pictures of them. Yes. They're dressed like you are, but they have a um, about a five-gallon tank of 0.5% chlorine. You know, it's almost like a garden sprayer. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're constantly spraying. These sprayers, these librarians, which many became my friends, um, just wonderful people, both men and women, they also acted as interpreters. Very valuable for me when I was trying to question a patient as far as how they're feeling and the barrage of questions you want to ask a patient because I had a really hard time understanding them for the most part. And it was also, I think, uh, comforting that for the, the patients to have a librarian right there next to you and being able to talk to them in their, in their language. They speak English, correct, but it's a dialect or a pidgin English that is hard for Americans to understand. Is that right? Yeah, people say that. And, Robert, for me, it was almost impossible to get more than maybe a, a third of what they were saying. Wow. Um, I have kind of bad hearing anyway. (laughs) I've been focusing my questions on your experience, Davis, um, because you're the first person I know who's worked hands-on with Ebola Mm -hmm. patients uh, and, you know, interested in the procedures and all of that. But I want to uh, say to our listeners that if they're thinking this is kind of heartless, uh, we're not talking about the actual people suffering from this disease, let's do that now. I want to hear about the people themselves. Liberia and Sierra Leone and, and Guinea, especially those three countries, you know, have been suffering with this, this terrible disease. And I think we can get very abstract, uh, us Americans, about uh, so-called exotic diseases that happen in places far away mm-hmm. uh, and, and maybe lose sight of who these people are and what they've gone through. What was your experience? Uh, you became um, pretty intimate with these people. And it, it really saddens your heart when you lose some. In two days, we happened to lose two teenagers. One was a girl and one was a young man, and it was just back-to-back. And it was so tragic. People have asked me this before, being a paramedic. Um, I consider myself a really passionate person. I think that's why I get into this field. But you also have to 
have some sort of detachment. And I can't really define that very well, but it's a very fine line. Your heart can go out to these patients, but if you lose somebody, you've got to be able to um, to move on. Um, and I don't know if that, that makes sense, but and I don't know if it sounds harsh, but you'd lose a patient and people would go off to by themselves after they came out of the ETU and you'd have to deal with your feelings. Um, we lost a two-year-old infant who had um, actually was the last couple of days I was there, and we thought that this young little girl was going to make it. We had a hard time establishing an IV. She had little tiny hands um, and veins, and we finally got an IV established and got her hydrated, and she was with her grandmother, who was uh, what they call a survivor, and who had been exposed to Ebola and had built up an immunity to it, and so she was actually able to to care for this little grand, uh, her granddaughter. And she had already lost her daughter to Ebola, and so she was primary caregiver for this little um, two-year-old. And we heard this wailing coming from, from the end of the ETU, and it was the grandmother, uh, and the little girl had died. Mm. Um, it was tough. Yeah. yeah. Really tough. It caught us by surprise, too. We were really... Uh, pretty upbeat that this little kid was going to make it. So, um. As I understand it, the way you treat Ebola is by just treating the symptoms. Uh, you try to keep people hydrated, et cetera, so that their own immune systems can eventually fight off the disease because there is no cure. Uh, That's right. That's right. And the survival rates would, would really depend on how late they would arrive at our ETU and get supportive care. We had people that were walking in that had just mild uh, symptoms, uh, maybe a little nausea, vomiting, maybe an elevated fever, and sure enough, they were, they were positive um, with Ebola. And they seemed to uh, have a really high survival rate because we were able to initiate really good supportive care quickly, and they walked out in, in a few days. Wow. Yeah, but unfortunately, we were in such a rural area, and it was such a primitive ambulance system to go out and get these uh, patients that by the time often they got to us, they were pretty well down the road with the virus. And I had the patient die on me just when I opened the ambulance up. Um, They just died right there. It all would depend on um, how promptly you could get to them. In one instance, we actually hiked in. Um, there were six of us on my team, and we hiked into a very remote village. As we heard, there were sick people in this village. And so by the time we got there, um, we were really surprised that there was a team from um, the Doctors Without Borders, the um, MSF uh, team that everybody has heard about there. Right. Incredible teams, by the way. But they had been airlifted in uh, a couple of days before. And so we were surprised as hell to run into this to each other. But they had seven confirmed Ebola deaths in that village and 12 um, unconfirmed, or what they call suspect cases. And walking into this village uh, back in the jungle was a very strange experience. The people were very subdued. The little kids, they weren't running around and playing like little kids and, you know, throughout the world would do. And... The older people were very, um, just very sullen, and it was a really tragic place. So this is what they call 
um, uh, hot spots, and those are situated throughout West Africa. That's where the virus is uh, currently. Um, it seems like it's in these little um, what they call hot spots. I mean, among the the many obstacles or difficulties that healthcare workers face is that, for instance, in your case, you're a foreigner. At least when you're handling patients, you're in this kind of outer space suit, right? I mean, right, right. There's a language difficulty. Um, these folks, in many cases, haven't had any contact. I'm assuming with this kind of healthcare, it's really weird and alienating. I mean, it can be. That's what I've heard. Uh, was that yeah. was that a problem? It was, and and I mentioned this village earlier, and to emphasize your point, we'd heard about this village because a woman had hiked out with her two uh, sick uh, children. They were uh, admitted into our ETU, and fortunately, the children and the mother were both Ebola negative, but she told us that the people in her village had been told that if you went to an ETU, if you got sick and went to an ETU, that you were surely going to die. And so that was most distressing to, to hear that from, from this woman. And she spoke another dialect that was very difficult even for the librarians uh, in the ETU to understand. But one thing we came up with this idea, and it actually was, it was pretty ingenious, was, um, as they say, she uh, tested negative, And she was being very well treated and, you know, a nice young woman with two young children. And we took um, an iPad and we videotaped her in her own language. And we recorded that she was being well treated, that we were nice people to not be afraid, and also that she was uh, had been tested negative. So when the six of us hiked into this village, we carried that iPad with us. And uh-huh. uh, when we got to the village, um, we gathered uh, the people around. We held up this iPad. It was pretty astonishing, Robert. They saw their... Uh, friends speaking in their own language, telling them that she was being well-treated, and if they're sick, to be sure to come and get treatment. And um, so <laughs> it was about the most positive exposure of Western technology, and we started to have a deluge of people hiking out. Um, I think we had about 18 the next day, people that actually hiked out um, and um, were admitted into our ETU. I have the feeling Apple would like to hear that story. Yeah, <laughs> we consider one of the real highlights of, of this whole mission was was that interaction with these people. Mm. Were there other ways, Davis, that you um, would try to break through the mask that you wore, literally, that disguised your face and muffled your voice to try to, you know, establish a connection with people? Yeah, absolutely. That's a really good question, Robert. And um, yeah, and I do that by touching. You know, you have your gloves on and you have an Ebola patient, but nevertheless, they are a patient. So you put your hands on them for sure. Um, I found in my experience, that's always the best approach to establish a rapport and trust. I would touch little kids. I would shake people's hands. Um, and then, of course, I do physical exams and actually touch touch these patients. And and if if they wouldn't seem to understand some of the things I was saying, because I try to be as pleasant as I can and let them know that we were concerned about them, because we certainly were. And if they had a hard time understanding me, I would have my Liberian colleagues uh, kind of interpret for me. And um, but to answer your question, yeah, even though they were. Ebola patients, you certainly still 
placed hands on them for sure. Your rubber glove hands. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sure. Um, yeah. Well, that's one of the you know many heartbreaking aspects of Ebola is that touch itself becomes forbidden. Um, the people mm-hmm. who are infected can't be touched uh, by bare hands. Uh, they right, shouldn't be. Right. Their relatives, their loved ones who ignore that precaution are among those who die the most. Uh, it's one of the saddest things. I read a um, really moving essay by uh, an American um, named Rebecca Schultz who teaches in Liberia and wrote uh, and published this essay called What I Want America to Understand About Ebola. She tells the story of a Liberian woman she'd befriended who she later found out died along with um, her daughter and her mother of Ebola. And she said, like most Liberian women, Mistress Yeke was a force. At 57, she had seen the worst side of humanity and the hardest side of life. She's referring to the civil wars in Liberia that preceded the Ebola uh, epidemic and survived to laugh about it. But the difference between violence and viruses is everyone knows how to run from bullets, grab your family and go. But Ebola comes quietly and kills painfully. With not enough treatment centers, families are asked to literally watch their loved ones die before their eyes. I know when Mistress Yeke's mother or daughter fell ill, the last thing she was thinking was to run. In Liberia, family is everything, and the tragedy of Ebola is that the tighter that bond, the more people love and care for each other, the more deadly the disease becomes. Ebola isn't ravaging West Africa because people are dirty or uneducated. It's precisely because people care and love on a level that we as Americans have lost touch with. So your story really gets to the the heart of that, you might have been the only person, or you you healthcare workers, who could safely touch these people. Uh, yeah, that's true. And God, Robert, I got to tell you, that's that's beautifully written. That's so right on. Um, and I might emphasize too to what she said. And I'm sure you and your listeners have have heard this, but it was spread by, uh, or it's still continual continuing to be spread by. Um, by the burial practices. Yes. And there is, in all these countries, a huge uh, campaign to change these because, as you can imagine, uh, if, a, if a patient dies, a family member dies of Ebola, it's a very ugly thing. You've got a lot of vomit, you have a lot of diarrhea, and so a natural tendency for these close-knit families that are mourning the, the tragic loss is to clean this patient up and, you know, their, their family member up prior to burial. And that is where you've heard the horror stories about entire families uh, just being decimated just by the simple um, uh, burial practices. And when a patient has actually actually dies of a balloon, it's my understanding that's when they're uh, the most virulent. I think that's the word virulent. It's when they're most contagious. Uh, exactly. And so to emphasize again, your um, what she wrote. They're wonderful, um, kind, gentle people. <clears throat> they're, they're, I've seen the mothers and the, the compassion that they have for their children, both the mothers and the fathers, and um, and also kind of the extended family um, that that goes along with it. Much more than I've seen in this country, that's for sure. Yeah, I've tried to imagine what it would be like to have someone you love fall ill with a disease, and then know that you could no longer touch them. Uh, yeah. know that the proper thing to do would be to hand them over to the medical authorities and never come close to them during this process, maybe never yeah. again in their lives. And 
and not to treat them lovingly after death the way you're, you've been taught to with these burial practices, but to let them exactly. be zip, zipped up in a plastic bag and disposed of. Exactly. I just can't exactly. imagine the emotional trauma of that, you know? Yeah, and to emphasize that, Robert, I've seen it, um, the procedure for handling a dead body, and it is just, um, boy, it's just like you say, it's so harsh. I mean, they're sended on by these sprayers that I mentioned earlier. They're just suddenly sprayed from head to toe with this heavy uh, chlorine solution, and here these people in these spacesuits are manhandling their loved ones into um, a body bag and then sprayed again, and then they're hoisted into another body bag. Um, it's double double bag, so it's just incredibly stark. It's just the opposite of, of caring, gentle treatment of, of, of deceased and so yeah, it's it's yeah, stark is the word that comes to mind. Well what um you talked about, you know, laying hands on patients in a in a gentle, kind, compassionate way as being mm-hmm. one thing you could do. What other aspects of the procedures there in these Ebola treatment units are designed not just to keep the health care workers safe and to help the, the patients get better if they're lucky, mm-hmm. but to comfort them. Actually, we were just getting some things for the kids. As you can kind of picture, this ETUs are just um, just incredibly harsh places. It's like a Quonset hut made in plastic, and, and they vary from site to site. But the one I was in, it's like uh, we had four large Quonset huts of uh, heavy-duty plastic, and that is over a concrete floor, and all the walls are, are this heavy plastic that can be sprayed down and and of course, used again. And the beds are like what I think of like a prison bed, heavy plastic over the mattress, so that can be hosed down or uh, disinfected. So, yeah, we would try to um, try to do as much as we could. We would linger. If our duties were over, we would try to linger with patients and actually chat with them and try to be a little upbeat with them. You just try to be considerate and compassionate, and you would not, like, do a treatment and just walk immediately out the door. If you had time, you would uh, linger, and you'd ask them about their family. Um, even though they're, they're in a, in a potentially dreadful, deadly situation, you still try to be as human and encouraging and upbeat as you possibly can. Um, you know, I think a, a lot of Americans probably still don't know that Liberia was created by the United States uh, in the uh, 1800s as a, as a colony for freed uh, slaves from the United States uh, who then migrated back to Africa. And so it has a linkage to America that goes way back, which is why English is the national language. And I've been told, I was told this by a documentary filmmaker I interviewed um, some years ago who made a film about Liberia, that Liberians uh, that he met loved America. And he said, if they could become the 51st state, they would do so tomorrow. Um, did you ever run into that? Um, yeah, I, I did. Um, one is, I, I felt so comfortable walking the streets, even though it was um, a very depressing place because of, of the outbreak. I had some time um, in the evenings that I would go back into um, the pretty rough areas of, of Monrovia, and um, i I'm usually pretty comfortable in in those kind of settings anyway, but but I never felt endangered at all. And 
of course, there's not very many Caucasians there, and so you were, you'd create quite a stir. But people were just wonderfully friendly and genuinely uh, appreciative of what you were doing for their country. As I say, I was there for six weeks, and I became friends with many of them. So, yeah, Americans are pretty popular. And there were other, I should mention, there were other nationalities that I saw in country as well. I, had, uh, I saw Germans, uh, Australians, um, New Zealanders, French. So it's not only Americans that have come to this. Oh, this, sure. Uh, Absolutely. Didn't mean to imply yeah. that. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Uh, um, what was the survival rate, Davis, uh, during your weeks in, in Liberia caring for Ebola patients? What percentage survived, roughly? It was pretty high. Um, someone else asked me that, and I asked one of our docs and, um, just before I left, and he, I remember him thinking it was somewhere like 30%. 30% um, survive, so yeah. 70% fatality? No, right? uh, survival. So, so 70% uh, survived is what you're saying. Yeah, we were getting, uh, we were getting pretty uh, good results. It certainly varies throughout the country. There was uh, Some of my team members went to another ETU up north, and uh, that was a place called Bong, and they were inundated with patients and happened to have more fatalities for sure. Huh. We were pretty lucky. Uh, Davis, you, you're, you're obviously, you know, a pretty tough guy. Uh, like I say, <laughs> firefighter, paramedic, smoke jumper, uh, former paratrooper. And you mentioned earlier that, you know, if you're going to treat a lot of people, quite a few of whom are likely to die from a, an illness, you have to just keep the job in front of you, the mission in front of you, and not get overwrought by it. But you've had time now, a few weeks, right, since you last right. were, were treating patients, uh, you know, to let this all kind of uh, process. Uh-huh. How has it affected you emotionally? Or, Well, I don't know if your listeners could hear when I was talking about the little uh, the two-year-old. I was starting to choke up um, and get tears in my eyes just thinking about it. So it has affected me, but at the same time, I have to say, Robert, we were able to accomplish so much with this incredible team I was with. In fact, I spent the whole morning um, uh, just prior to your phone call composing a letter to my team members just trying to summarize the whole experience and how valuable I consider all of them to be and how uh, we've all become close-knit friends. And um, it was a wonderful, unique situation with these team members. And um, like I, I say, the high percentage of uh, survivors that we had, um, also the positive news is coming out of Liberia. We're seeing some significant improvement with um, with a number of cases. The last uh, research I've seen uh, just getting online, but one of my teammates is turning around and heading to uh, Sierra Leone here uh, in a couple of months, which is um, still in pretty dire straits. Yeah, Liberia has uh, done significantly better than Sierra Leone, and maybe Guinea uh, as well. I'm not sure about Guinea. Yeah, I haven't, uh, haven't really followed Guinea, so... Um, yeah, Sierra Leone, just because one of my friends is going there. So Wow. Um, yeah, yeah. What's next uh, in this line of work for you, Davis? Do you have <laughs> other plans, or are you just going to sort of get back to your other life, your painting, for a while? Well, I've been commissioned by the National Smoke Jumper Association to do this um, painting commemorating the 75th anniversary of smoke jumping. It's a, a big project, and it's actually a deadline, so I need to get that. Uh, they've made some subtle inquiries whether or not I would like to come back 
and I told them I would. It's because um, now that I'm trained and now that I have experience um, that I think I can offer something to uh, to the teams. So I think that there is a possibility of me going back as a replacement for some of these um, other team members that are kind of rotating out. I've been asked to go back to Cambodia with another medical team next year. So I can see keeping keeping involved with this for sure. It's pretty much who I am. I get a great deal of satisfaction and reward out of being able to do this kind of work for mm-hmm. sure. Mm-hmm. Um, how much longer are you under quarantine? Let's see. I've got just over two weeks, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to start a movie orgy because... There's like eight movies I've been dying to see, so... uh, (laughs) (laughs) I bet the movie Outbreak isn't one of them, though. (laughs) You know, actually, you know what? I actually tried to get that on Netflix, uh, but no, I couldn't find it. They don't don't offer it, but I remember that movie. Yeah, Dustin Hoffman, I like that movie. But it's not very realistic compared to what you just did. Well, I don't know. You know, it's been years since I've seen that, but uh, the first opportunity I get, I'm certainly going to rent that one. For sure. Well, Davis, uh, here's wishing you a normal temperature for the next couple <laughs> weeks, a uh, a happy return to movie going, and uh, honestly, uh, just to thank you. Uh, I think that um, medical workers like you just, uh, you know, I can't say enough about what a great thing it is that you do. Well, thank you, Robert. I, I appreciate that. It um, was a hell of an experience, and um, yeah, please. Uh, as I mentioned in a, a Facebook message to my Facebook friends, keep um, West Africa in your thoughts and your prayers because um, their ordeal is is far from over. Yeah, and as we talked about, the emotional scars, they will be around for a long time, even if the uh, outbreak is eradicated. That's right. Yes, I'm sure. Yeah. Davis Perkins is a retired firefighter, a paramedic, and a landscape painter based in San Rafael, California. He just returned a little more than a week ago from Liberia, where he was providing emergency relief to Ebola patients. You can learn more about him and his paintings at his website, davisperkins.com. And by the way, uh, the interview we just heard was recorded uh, three days ago on Christmas Day. And since then, I've checked back in with Davis just to see how he was doing, and uh, his temperature is still normal. Everything's fine. He says that uh, no member of his team, as far as he knows, has come down with Ebola, which is great. And uh, he is really looking forward to the end of his quarantine on January 7th. Also, uh, I got a chance to ask Davis something I left out of the interview, um, but uh, wondered about later, which is how much someone actually gets paid for risking their life taking care of Ebola patients uh, for a relief agency. And uh, Davis told me that normally when he goes overseas on medical missions, he pays all his own expenses. It's completely a volunteer gig. But uh, in this case, he was pleasantly surprised when Heart to Heart International provided him with a uh, modest sum for his services. Oh, and there was one other question uh, I wanted to ask him. You know, Davis, it just occurred to me that you probably haven't hugged your wife yet, your wife, Crystal. Uh, I did hug her when I first saw her, but now um, I'm uh, sleeping in the spare room, and she kisses the very top of my head, which is bald. And And that's safe? Yeah, that's safe. Okay. And not symptomatic. My temperature is normal, and I'm not feeling anything, so it's very safe. Okay, great. Take care. Okay, good to talk to you, Robert. Likewise. Well, that is it for today's 7th Avenue Project. Do join us again next week when I'll be back. I'm Robert Polly, and we are always online at our website, 7thAvenueProject.com. We are on SoundCloud, iTunes, 
the Stitcher radio app, and lots of other podcast apps. So you can listen any old way you want on just about any device. And uh, since we have a little time left in our broadcast, I thought I'd uh, play some music from the Ebola outbreak. Uh, In Africa, music is often used to educate and raise awareness, and also, in this case, to raise funds for Ebola relief. This piece is called Africa Stop Ebola by uh, a bunch of famous musicians from countries such as Mali and Cote d'Ivoire, including Amadou and Miriam, Salif Keita, Umu Sangare, Tikan Jaffa Koli, uh, Makobe, and others. We'll also put some uh, links to other Ebola songs on our website, 7thAvenueProject.com.
tragédie Comme une fausse note qui vient dans la mélodie Ebola, on te pensait depuis leur abolie Tu te balades en déboulant seulement la maladie On va pas fuir devant toi, on va pas s'enterrer Car on le sait, on a les moyens de s'en tirer On va te ferrer, on n'est pas pestiféré On va se mettre ensemble, on va te virer L'Afrique a besoin de vaccins, de médicaments Est-ce que l'espoir pour eux est permis Faut-il fermer les yeux et les laisser dans l'oubli Non, alors on s'unit pour la bonne cause On se mobilise, on brise les portes closes Ebola, je jure de te poursuivre jusqu'à t'évincer L'Afrique a besoin du vaccin pour se soigner